Hi, I'm Kanika, and you're listening to That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast, where I interview public figures on their life lessons in parenting, legacy, and built-in sixth sense. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland, and you're checking out That's Total Mom Sense. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton, and my experience on That's Total Mom Sense was fantastic. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Thank you to my guests, brand partners, community, and you for making the show possible. Episodes release every Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com and by following me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Kanika Chada Gupta. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Is your little one starting daycare and you have to label all their items? Do you need to keep track of all the water bottles at home? Do you want to help your toddler know left from right on their shoes? Look no further. Enter Name Bubbles. Founder and President Michelle Brandris launched Name Bubbles as a way to help parents stay organized. After her experience of sending her son off to daycare only to discover half the things she packed for him didn't return home, she resorted to the tape and permanent marker method. To her dismay, the tape either peeled or fell off in the dishwasher. This quick fix solution didn't cut it, and with her son's severe nut allergy, she knew she needed to keep track of his things. The outcome? She discovered a new way to label, and namebubbles.com was born. Today, it's been more than 15 years in the business. Namebubbles is loved by parents worldwide and parent-owned and operated. The brand ensures it's non-toxic through third-party testing, and the labels are dishwasher safe, laundry safe, microwave safe, and freezer safe. I know my kids especially love the unicorn and dino designs. I appreciate that all their steel bottles have labels that remain intact, and laundry is a breeze since the names don't wash off. Thank you, Name Bubbles, for keeping me and my household and kiddos organized. Use my code MOMSENSE to receive 25% off at namebubbles.com. The code is MOMSENSE, M-O-M-S-E-N-S-E, to receive 25% off at namebubbles.com. Happy labeling! Do you have a fear of failure? FOMO? Rejection? Of course you do. We all do. Today, I'm joined by my dear friend, Farnoosh Tarabi, who's going to help us work with, not against, our fears. She wrote a book all about it called A Healthy State of Panic, Follow Your Fears to Build Wealth, Crush Your Career, and Win at Life. Farnoosh is an award-winning financial expert, author, and speaker known for her insightful advice on personal finance, entrepreneurship, and career development. Her career took off when she joined CNBC as a financial correspondent, and she has gone on to be a sought-after contributor on the Today Show, Good Morning America, and the New York Times. As an accomplished author, Farnoosh has written several books, including You're So Money, Live Rich Even When You're Not, and When She Makes More, 10 rules for breadwinning women. Her podcast, So Money, has released over 1,600 episodes and has garnered tens of millions of downloads. I especially love her segment, Ask Farnoosh, where she answers questions about what to do with your Roth IRA and the ideal time to buy or sell your home. Today, we're going to talk about leaning into our fears and making them our superpower. Farnoosh, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Kanika, thank you so much. That was a really generous introduction. And thank you for also letting us all know that if you were, were afraid, we might be onto something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, given the context, that's total mom sense, we're going to go into the fears that we have as parents. I think mm. that's something we all can relate to. But congrats on the book. I love the launch that you had at your home. It was such an intimate breakfast. And I just want to give a testimonial to you about how sweet and thoughtful you are and how you shined a light on everyone there. And you really were this source of connection and it was just a warm hug. So thank you. you. It's really why I got into my work. I wanted to be a bridge between people and knowledge and people and information. I know for me, like as the daughter of immigrants growing up in a world that was 
outside was foreign, inside was foreign. I had to learn a lot about who I was in the world on my own. And academics was my, was my way out and learning was my way out. So I've always appreciated that and try to bring that to my professional world, but also my personal world. So I love connecting. I always say like writing books, it's great because you bring people together and not that I'm going to probably write another one right away, but it's definitely a rewarding part of it. Yes. Yes. I'm so glad you did. I have your previous book that you wrote nine years ago. And I love that you're tackling your own fears because writing a book is like giving birth to a child. And the gems that you drop here are uh, incredible. I mean, I feel like they're so worthy of a book club because everyone has their own story and perspective to share. Thank you. I wanted to write a memoir of service, a story that was mine, but really it's all of our stories. So Mm -hmm. I'm a central character in the book and my family and we'll get into it. Uh, But my goal in writing was not just to be like, me, 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 here's my story, but the stories I chose to tell, how is this going to help the reader? Is this going to help the reader? Will she understand? Will she see herself? And I'm happy to hear that you're seeing yourself. That says a lot. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I noticed right off the bat, like, I feel like the biggest takeaway for me is living and embracing fear. And it's so connected to, you know, what I've predicated this show on our our intuition. Mm -hmm. We have to trust that this is helping us in some way. And, you know, much like hunters and gatherers, you know, they didn't want to get mauled by some animal. They had to trust that their fear was protecting them. And so if we take that kind of vantage point, it's not something that we should dread. No, I think, you know, we can learn a lot from the ancient times. I think that back then, of course, fear was very primal and it was very much a matter of life or death. When you sensed fear back then, it was because your life was at stake. And I think that as society has evolved and civilization has evolved and culture has evolved and we've evolved as humans, so has the role of fear. Although we still think of it as this very primitive thing that has very few answers for us, that we think when fear shows up, it just wants us to stay stuck, run away, or fight. And I think that we are no longer just trying to protect our lives actual lives, right? We were trying to also protect our livelihoods, our relationships, our money, our careers, our family unit. And so when fear arrives in those contexts, that's what I wanted to explore. I wanted to see what were the frameworks uh, within this, as I'm fearful, what is the way to get to a healthier place using fear as I have maybe not always consciously in my life. And then I did use, I, you know, today I can say that I, I know how to work with fear. And that's what I wanted to teach in the book that we don't have to be, first of all, ashamed or feel weak when fear shows up, because that's again, culturally how we've been conditioned to experience fear and look at fear all the books, all the memes, all the things, uh, fearlessness is courage, is bravery. Well, I don't think that it's, they're mutually exclusive. I think that you can be fearful and you can be courage, courageous. You can be fearful and fulfilled and smart. It's a matter of having an emotional intelligence around your fears, which we've never been taught how to have or be. And you know, this book is my offer in, in towards that goal. It's not a super scientific book, although there's a lot of research in it as I couldn't help myself. I'm a journalist, mm-hmm. but it's really, it's really driven by the power of story and example. And I was discovering that like to really give the steps, it's much clearer when you tell the stories, people find the steps within the stories. Exactly, exactly. Well, I want you to set the stage of when, you know, your parents immigrated to the U.S. from Iran. And one thing that they kind of lovingly called you was Tarsu, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> which means scaredy cat in Farsi, right? I was an emotional kid. My, I was not only a terrified child and I was a, I cried a lot. My mom remembers me as just like this really emotionally charged child scared, weepy, zealous too at times. I just had all the range. And 
the fearfulness though was what really I think branded me as a kid. And just to give you context for how that happened, like how, you don't just arrive in the world terrified. You know, I think that that <laughs> your environment influences you. And yeah, so my parents are immigrants and my mother was 19 when she had me in the States. My mother never really had that foray into young adulthood. She was immediately saddled with responsibilities, including coming to America and having to start a new life here at 19, newly married, new to motherhood, new to everything American, and was justifiably scared. And this was the 80s. We were living in Worcester, Massachusetts, which the New York Times calls nobody's first choice. It is a a, a robust city in the heart of Massachusetts, in the heart of New England, lots of rich culture and school. I think there's a huge billboard on Route 9 that's like city, Worcester, the city of 10 colleges and universities. And my dad was attending. We moved there for my dad's uh, graduate degree in physics. And nevertheless, it was also the 80s, the year, the era of like kids on the backs of milk cartons. My parents watched a lot of five o'clock news. That's where they got their temperature of the day. Like their yeah. their risk tolerance derived from the media. And I work for the media. So I know like we don't always get it right. We, can tend, we tend to catastrophize. And right. so they had a little bit of a this rumble of fear constantly protecting me, especially my mom, not speaking the language, not knowing how to drive, not really finding connection in her neighbors and friends in Worcester because we, there weren't a lot of Iranians. Yeah. As a result, I became this, I was like an appendage. I did never left her ever. My mother kept me extremely close to her. And so I was always that kid that didn't trust anybody except my immediate family. I remember, and teachers, I remember in kindergarten, we had a substitute teacher unannounced. This man came in and I immediately did not trust him. And I ran out of the kindergarten class, banging on other teachers' doors, telling them there was a stranger in our classroom and they had to come and save us. And there was another time when I threw, I opened the, st the book with my four-year-old self, throwing myself onto a running vehicle. The car was in park, everything worked out. But the fear of being abandoned in that story of being left alone was what charged me out into the street, onto this car where I didn't want the woman who was babysitting me to run to the store to get something. It was the 80s. You could leave your kid at home. I do not regret being that terrified girl. It got me into some trouble, but I think what it ultimately gave me was an early relationship with fear and an intimate relationship with fear that carried through my young 20s and 30s. And ultimately, I had to reconcile with it because I couldn't continue to be that 25-year-old jumping onto the hood of a car, you know, whenever fear came my way. Like, I can't keep dead-ending myself, putting myself in harm's way because fear can do that. It can, when you don't have the agency and you are a child and you don't have the understanding, you will make these impulse moves with your fear and it can be dangerous. And we take that into adulthood not ever realizing like, oh, we're adults now. We are the ones with agency. Whatever emotion shows up at my doorstep, I'm the one in charge. Aren't We don't have to be victims of our emotions. We can actually right. be the ones uh, that are calling the shots. And I had to reconcile with this in my 20s. And once I did that, think my life started to open up. And that's where the advice in the book really is, is sourced from. Yes, yes. Well, I want to take it back a little bit because you moved around a lot and you even changed your name a few times um, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it was, I guess it's this fear of rejection. That's the, the chapter where, you know, I, I immigrated with my parents from India when I was two. You know, you never question your elders. And so when at school from kindergarten onwards, I was called Kanika. I just went with it. I was like, how am I going to challenge this grown up? Like, yeah. Kanika, it is, you know? And I I didn't change, not change my name. I didn't pronounce my name the correct way <laughs> until college. And I was like, it's actually Kanika. And why am I butchering my name just to kind of appease everybody else? And so that's something that is a common experience. And mm -hmm. your parents were like, we're going to have to make it easier. That's what they thought was best at the time. Assimilation. I think when we 
When we experience the fear of rejection, we think that the way to protect our sense of security when that fear shows up is to be like everybody else. We try really hard. And I did as a kid. And I think, you know, I can't blame that little girl who tried to just really be like all the Ashleys and the Christinas and the Nicoles in her classroom that seemed to have perfect lives because nobody ever questioned their existence. And how, where did their name come from? And therefore, when, you know, it's a loaded question, right? Like your name is so personal. It is. And I would ask my parents, like, where did you come up with my name? Because I have not met a Farnoosh within our Iranian circle of friends. You've never brought up another Farnoosh. This wasn't an inspired name, like someone you met, like, you know, and they said, well, in Farsi, a lot of names, at least in my family, my dad's side of the family start with F-A-R. So there's Farzaneh, Farokh, Farhad, Farhang. And so they wanted to keep that rhythm going. And my dad was like, I think I just made it up. My mom claims to have actually like known someone named Farnoosh, but I was like, really? That was it? Like that was the whole calculus? And meanwhile, like I have to live with this name, y'all. Like this was Mm -hmm. not well thought out. My parents, interestingly, did legally change their names once they became naturalized citizens. My dad, Farouk, became Adam because his middle name is Ahmad. And so he just went with Adam. My mom is Shada in in her, her given name is Shada, but she changed it to Sheila. Right. And then my brother's born 10 years later and he's Todd. So, <laughs> and I'm still Farnoosh or Farnoosh. And I, not because I haven't tried to change it. I think what I wanted, before I committed to the legal change, I wanted to experiment with some names. So I ter- I changed it to... I remember the first one was Ashley. We moved to a lot of new towns and new schools throughout my adolescence. So I always saw these as opportunities to change my persona and try something new. These kids didn't know where I, you know, me from Paul. So I just was like, hi, I'm I'm Ashley. I'm Christina. I'm Nikki. And interestingly, (laughs) while I was cool with the name and I would tell people this is my name and they'd go, okay. And they'd start calling me. I wouldn't respond because my body, my brain wasn't used to hearing that name being called upon me. And so it was like quickly became like an impossible thing to keep going. And so I would say, you know what? Let's drop the Christina. It's actually Farnoosh. That's my given name. I would always say like, it's my middle name, you know, right? (laughs) or it's my, it's the Iran. So people would just call me Fran or Farah, believe it or not, and not without my approval or, you know, having right. a conversation about it. Um, they were just like, I remember I had this one gym teacher just called me Fran for four years. And I mean, oh I just, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think it's a funny story, but it really, it's really what it's telling, like beneath it all, it's this girl who just really wanted to feel like part of the American culture. Yes. What we're named, our names are so are so attached to our sense of identity and belonging. It wasn't until I went to high school where a new school again, and this was a very diverse culturally, religiously, all the ways diverse school, public, interestingly enough. And yet, and everybody was like, cool, was down with my name and my culture. And they gave me nicknames like Noosh and Nooshi. And I was like, what is going on? And the lesson there for me is that while I didn't have control over where we moved and all that, but as an adult, if you're not, if you're fearing rejection because your environment is not cool with who you are, the, the impulse may be to try to force the connection. But really the fear is telling you, this is not a place for you and you need to go where you're loved. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be. But we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child.
and yourself. Whether you're a new parent or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. There is another place for you that's going to give you all the things that you deserve, which is your respect, safety, acceptance, or create your own community. You know, maybe you don't have to plug in somewhere, but build your own room full of cheerleaders and friends. You know, I I think that um, so often in life, we force the acceptance. And I love the saying that rejection is sometimes, rejection is protection. And sometimes rejection happens not to you, but for you. And we need to trust the rejection because that is what ultimately carries us into a place of acceptance and a desire to go somewhere else. And if you are that person that constantly is trying to morph and change to create that acceptance that is just really resisting you for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, you ultimately become the culprit. You are the one who is constantly rejecting yourself. And that's what I found is that when I went to this new high school with everybody like accepting me, I actually went in there going, hey, everyone, my name is Nikki. Self-rejecting, realizing like, I'm I'm the one standing here holding the no button. It has to stop because there's no need for it. There's actually no need for it. This This place is welcoming and I'm safe now. Yes. Yes. And it's, you know, painfully inauthentic. And I think if we operate from that place, you know, you're just never going to feel self-assured and, and, you know, kind of happy. So yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Let's go into FOMO <laughs> because that's something that even adults feel. And I think in this you know, social media driven world, it's in our face and it's like, oh, you're not in Tulum. Oh, you're, you know, you're not at this party. And, you know, we all have to kind of reconcile how that affects us. And, you know, it could be turning off Instagram and, and, you know, being kind of unplugged for a bit or whatever that is, but how do you address FOMO in mm-hmm. your life and, and how do you suggest we mm-hmm. tackle it? Yeah, it happens to the best of us. I mean, we're all susceptible to the fear of missing out, which is a bit of a modern day phenomenal fear. It's not to say that the cave people didn't wonder, sit at home wondering like, why won't she invite me to the party? Or like, (laughs) everyone's having all this fun and I'm here, you know, creating cartoons on my stone wall. I don't know. It was, social media has added this additional layer of it's a pressure, right? It's a, mm-hmm. it's a constant realization of all the things that you're not doing that others are. And that's really what FOMO is. It's like, ultimately, we're afraid of not using up our hours in the most optimal way. We all have these limited hours and these limit, the limited time. Time is a limited resource. And so, you know, we get one life and we feel like we need to make the most of it. And The problem with FOMO is often that we misinterpret this fear as a calling to go do exactly what everyone else is doing, copy-paste. Because if Kanika is having a blast in Tulum, I must also be someone who could have a blast in Tulum and I must do that because then I will feel, again, it goes back to the rejection piece and the loneliness piece. FOMO actually follows the chapters on rejection and loneliness because I think they are very much in the same ecosystem and they kind of piggyback on one another and they feed one another. You mm-hmm. fear missing out because you fear rejection and you fear loneliness and you want a sense of belonging. And I get it and I've experienced it and I continue to experience it. But here's my offer. The next time FOMO arrives in your life, use it as a sign to explore more about what it is in your life that you want to fulfill. That this thing that you're seeing on social media or this thing that you're reading about or this thing you heard a friend do, has inspired the thoughtfulness that you need to say, okay, the solution is not to go to Tulum, but maybe it is that I want to experience that sense of adventure or I need a Mm. break. I'm burnt out at work or I want to disconnect. I want to go somewhere magical and completely different from what I'm experiencing now. That is a healthier calculation than going immediately on Expedia, booking the plane, booking the trip, and then you're in Tulum and you're like, I didn't realize it was so humid here. Like, what am I doing here? This is not, I am not a jungle person. I actually interviewed the creator of FOMO. His name is Patrick McGinnis. He Mm -hmm. 
created the acronym while he was a grad student at Harvard Business School and it became what it is today. And he's kind of like the, the father of FOMO. And we mm-hmm. talked and he said that FOMO is really a tapping on your shoulder that's saying, Kanigo, what's up with you? Explore that, unpack that. Fear is, well, I think what we're seeing is like, it's constantly an opportunity to self-discover again. Mm-hmm. And figure out what you want and what's bothering you or what you're worried about or what you really want to protect because there are goals at stake, there are your values are at stake. I think those are all great places to go at least once a day. <laughs> yes, yes, 100%. I mean, I think at this phase in my life, I have way more JOMO and I am at like jazz. <laughs> oh, and you know, I joke about I it. I am the totally book. cool. Yeah, because... As the daughters of immigrants, I'm sure we are very good at missing out on a lot of yes, things culturally yes. growing up. Like we, our parents were like, baby, uh, sleepover? I'm sorry. You're sleeping right. in your own bed. Um, right. right. Yeah. You know, growing up on the East Coast in Massachusetts, you know, skiing and ice skating were all the rage. My parents were like, it's hard enough to walk. Like we're not, we're not pushing <laughs> the envelope and putting you on dangerous skis or I, or, or. <laughs> putting you on ice like that's not happening we've risked a lot to get here like we're done exactly all exactly. the risks all of the risks are taken yes yeah the risk benefit analysis not worth it not worth it for the thrill you know if you're not in a specific circle for a reason own that make your own don't feel like you need to try because it goes back to the whole you know you're rejecting yourself you don't know anyone anyone anything yeah and I think it was like Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis who was like, don't accept all the invitations. Right. Right. Like, yeah. You should be, be selective. You should have, have discretion, you know, like you showing up everywhere. I mean, you know, it's even like the celebrities that you're seeing in all the places, like overexposure is a thing. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. Totally. It, is, totally. it is a thing to fear. Yeah, exactly. It really, really is. And now if we can touch on the fear of uncertainty. Yeah. You know, in 2023, we saw like 224,000 layoffs in finance and tech um, predominantly. And, you know, everyone's kind of shaking in their pants um, Mm -hmm. as to what's going to happen next year. Yeah, I'm glad we're going here. It's true. It's a real timely fear. And it's almost like, is is it ever going to go away? I feel like we were fearing a recession last year and the year before that. And, I think that the healthier way to interact with the fear of what I call these like abstracts, the uncertainties that we just kind of go, what if a recession? What if the stock market crashes? What if my bank fails? And we're also getting into like the fear of money here, but uncertainty and money are kind of two peas in a pod. And what I would encourage people to do when they're fearing these bigger fears around the what ifs that would impact their purse strings and their financial livelihoods is to get very clear on if and when that event happens, what would your life look like? Like go to the dark place and and not just think someday, what if a recession, but what if it actually happens tomorrow? We know that typically in recessions, layoffs increase and you might lose your job. So what if you lose your job, not just someday, but tomorrow or today? Now, for me, that's actually more scary, right? Scarier than like just living in sort of like this land of what ifs, because yeah. that just, that you just spiral. You don't really have any solutions or action steps. You're just like, oh, it makes you, it makes you feel terrible. And the power of actually being able to distill that fear, make it more urgent, make it more recent, more, give it a timeliness, like as in today or tomorrow, and actually seeing how it would affect your, family and your finances. So let's reverse engineer this. You know, what would we do? We, w- I'm sure we would want to at least see what we have in the bank account. We would want to see how far we could stretch that. We would want to learn if our company has uh, in their guidebook a way, like a, you know, here's our severance. You know, traditionally we give this many weeks. So then you know that, then you go to your state unemployment website, uninsurance, your insurance website. What is the deal there? And then right. you start to kind of put pieces together and maybe you realize like, I'm better off than I was afraid of, or I have some holes to fill. And so now you go and try to fill those holes, whether that means reviewing your budget and cutting costs now, as opposed to if and when that layoff happens. The good thing about this is that you're able to create a plan 
and review these things without that additional adrenaline of mm-hmm. I've actually lost my job. It's much harder to make rational choices in that you know moment where you're you know justifiably really really scared but you've done the sort of pre-work now of like managing that fear now before it actually happens to to do some really important things and then you're you know that that's the healthy state of panic exactly exactly it softens the blow because you're prepared yes and the other thing i want to say about financial uncertainty and any uncertainty is that what it's really when the fear of that shows up when you anticipate uncertainty and you're afraid the fear doesn't want you to try to manipulate the situation or try to control things you can't control. Like I lost my job in 2009, as did many Americans in the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I could go back and beg for my job. I couldn't go back and force them to give me my salary and my title. I couldn't even force another employer to do that because it was the recession. There weren't any jobs. So it wasn't even, that was not, you know, it's not worth my time to try to manipulate uncertain things that are out of my control. But let's not forget, we have a lot of certainties in our lives that we can control. And I call these, you know, your priceless assets. So take inventory of those things. So for me, it wasn't that I had any more, you know, a salary or health benefits or a job title, but I am still who I am. You can lay a woman off from her job. You can't lay her off from her ambitions. And the fact that I have a network, a professional network, a personal network, I have an education, I have a body of work. I have an incredible ability to plan and roll up my sleeves and stay up really late and figure things out and be strategic. These are assets. And when you take inventory of that, you you can actually much clearly, you can much more clearly create a plan to do the next thing and we'll, you'll be more confident. You'll feel more supported. You'll like remember who you are and right. go and try to do the next thing. And the next thing for me was actually to start a business. I started freelancing. Like it was, you know, like no tomorrow. And eventually a lot of those income streams, I was like, I think I have a business here. And I incorporated in the summer after getting laid off in the spring. And that has been basically what I've grown since. I have not gone back for the most part, to work in-house anywhere. And I thank my own fear of uncertainty for getting me there. Yes, yes. Your fear was a catalyst for something even greater and what you were meant to do, which is really, really profound when you think about it. I wanted to switch gears and go into parenting. And so I wanted to start with your motherhood journey. Did you always know that you wanted to be a mom or were you fearful about that at the onset? Mm. Yes and yes. I always mm. knew I wanted to be a mom and I was a terrified you know, mom-to-be. And it started actually in my 20s before I was even married, before I was even dating. And I was working in the media world in New York, as you know. It's yeah. cutthroat and it's long hours and it doesn't pay well. And I would look at older women who were in their 30s who were more senior and getting pregnant by choice and coming out of HR in tears because they're realizing, oh, we don't actually have much paid leave. And I thought I was going to get six weeks. I actually have three. I have to patchwork my vacation days with my sick days, with my short-term disability days. And (laughs) seriously, and they're like, this is this is the ha- this is it like and then of course they're not getting paid as well as they should and so they get into being a mom for the first time and they're doing that calculation that so many new parents do of like childcare versus my salary and they quit right. and they dead end they're dead ended right and i just thought mm-hmm. okay that's the future and so yeah. i you know i write about it in the book and i think, okay, what's going to be a different blueprint? Because I I can't wait for corporate America to realize the importance of supporting families at work. And we are getting better on that front. But this was also early 2000s, mid 2000s. This is not nearly, we weren't anywhere near having these important conversations. And Mm -hmm. I think the pandemic definitely has helped in that way to Um, encourage employers to recognize like you can't expect your your employees to come to work 80 hours a week at work when school get when school lets out at 3 p.m you know right right exactly, <laughs> exactly. and not pay them enough and childcare is like a mortgage payment so 
the responsibilities on families to like figure this out. And a lot of them, and I understand it, are like, well, one of us is going to not work. Yeah. And usually it was mom. And I would see that and go, okay, that's not what I want for me. And so I started to realize like, if I want to be a mom, a successful working mom, then I need to start making a lot more money. Mm -hmm. And I remember taking this New York magazine quiz. It was like 2006. And it was like, how much money do you need to live in New York and do all the things you want to do? And I was starting to answer the questions. And at the end, it said, you need a million dollars a year, lady. And <laughs> I was like, well, maybe I'll just have one kid or maybe yeah. I'll, live in, I'll live in Queens. Or, um, But even then it was like, you're going to need $750,000 a year. And I, I looked at my colleague and I, who was older and I go, I don't understand this math. And she said to me, you'll get there. I never forgot that. Calc- I mean, that to this day, I, I and I, I like, I, I contribute, I attribute my um, ambition from doing that quick, quick math in New York mm-hmm. Magazine and being like, okay, this is what I need to make. Let's get going. And the solution is not to marry rich, which right. is something that I was told to do. Like, that's just it. Like, you're just gonna have to marry a rich person. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that, because <laughs> that's right. easy. <laughs> it's easier to be your own rich person. Yes. I was like, how about if I'm the rich person and I marry myself and then I have my kid. And if a guy comes along who wants to join me on this crusade, like, great. And he did. And he's still with me. And thankfully, saving myself is my responsibility. I accept that. I also mm-hmm. don't want to say that any, everyone else is off the hook. I think we should live in a, I would like love to live in a world where everybody accepts it. Like we all play a, a small role in everyone's success and we all are invested in everyone's success. I am my biggest advocate. I have to be my biggest advocate. If I'm not, who's going to be my biggest advocate? Exactly. Why do Mm -hmm. we think someone else should take that role? Nobody else knows me more than me. Nobody else knows what I care about more than me and what I'm willing to risk and not risk more than me. So I need to be the one who's in that driver's seat. And I learned that thankfully early on, on the backs of other women who were doing it the hard, hard way and right. thinking, gosh, what, what's going what's, what's gonna to be left for me? Like, what can I do? So I had the benefit of time to start to plot and plan. And I started to freelance more, bring in my own like revenue streams, get out of debt faster. I had some lingering cre- credit card and student loan debt in my early 20s. I wrote a book right away. As soon as I could, someone give me a deal. Yeah, let's write that book. Because I learned early on that, you know, a book is a forever platform. You can't get laid off from being an author and having a book. Like that's always going to be selling and will always be a calling card. And that is why I've continued to write books. Because for me, it's something that I love to do and I've seen the results and I has worked for me. Motherhood is not easy, but I think having had the years before motherhood to get really firm and successful in my career... Look, I said to myself, once I have children, I don't want to be somebody who's going into HR begging for time off. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that it's so easy running your business and having a family, but you have no one to ask for permission from but yourself. Yes. yes. And that's and not autonomy a is thing. the big thing. Yeah. And one thing I encourage young women who are like, I want to be a mom and I'm working in corporate and I don't have entrepreneurial ambitions, that's fine. Nothing wrong with working a nine to five and working in corporate or nonprofit or you know having a boss. But what I encourage them to do is to really, really love what they do and, and try to um, go for the promotions, get the raises, jump around and all the things and not worry that like they can't do that and have children or they're doing too much before they have children because when you have kids, you have to slow down. No, 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 no. I want you to get to a place where you are so enamored with your career and you are making good money and you have even more, you have more rungs on the ladder to climb that when you have a child, you will not want to easily quit your job. And you can have a motherhood and a thriving career. Where I see so many parents drop out of the workforce is usually they you know, they say, this is, the, this is how it goes. It's a two-step. They go, well, I did the math. My, I was a teacher. So childcare is way more than my teacher's salary. Got, get that. And then they say to me in the same breath, I also didn't love my job. 
Mm. So yeah, yeah, how can you how can you have this new life that you're taking care of and go to a job you hate? Of course, you're not going to want right. to do that. Right. You much prefer <laughs> being at home and and being with your you would you would feel terrible. But my son said to me the other day because I said to him I'm traveling again this week for my book. I'm going to Philadelphia and he's like, "Mom, our whole life has become a healthy state of panic stuff." <laughs> and and I said to him, "Evan, I hope that one day you find a career that you love so much that you are willing to sometimes go do that. And it's life is not about being with your family 24-7. It's about a balance of things. It's about mom and dad going out there and connecting with other people. And how do we even have the house that we have? Like I have to work, right? There is an actual yeah. need for this. But also I I'm like I said, I love it so much, Evan. I never want my kids to think that what I do is a drag. And listen, exactly. some days it is, but I don't want them to, I want them to always think like, mom, love, because then it's like, why is she leaving us to go do the thing that she doesn't even like? Yeah, exactly. That's, exactly. that's, no. that's very confusing. I have to say right. for everybody. Right, right. No, I, I think it's so important to live by your, there's um, an Indian uh, concept, dharma, which is your duty and broadly your purpose. And so if you are living your purpose, not a day of your life will feel like work. And I think that's that's the goal. And that's something that as parents, we should be modeling for our kids so mm -hmm. that they do what is authentically exciting and fulfilling for them. I, I want to come back to to fears uh, because we have young kids, but you know, soon to be teenagers, and I already catch myself thinking, I, I just I wouldn't want, you know, my kid to get anyone pregnant or you know, OD on fentanyl. Like I, I yeah. go there, oh, yeah. and I'm Those like, are, yeah, no, yeah, I go there. even just social media being so pervasive. So we're parenting in a very different world, and and in this digital age, and so it's it's so new to all of us. Um, but yeah, how, how do we kind of just quell those fears? Wow. I know. I mean, funny story yesterday, I, my husband and I are both home and kids are home because it's a holiday it's school day, but it's a holiday. And my husband's upstairs. My kids are downstairs. I, I decide to go work out. It's in the morning. So my kids are old enough where like, if they need something, they just like, they knew where their dad was. It wasn't like we all have, you know, when your kids are like two, you can't leave them alone in a yeah. room, but yeah, they're yeah. nine and six. Like they're fine. They're watching right. TV. Right. They won't even know I'm gone. But as I'm driving to the gym, I have my mother, like, I feel like I, you know, the older you get, you're like, I'm really just my mom. And so I, um, I text my daughter on her iPad because I know she's on her iPad. She has a, an email attached to her account. And so I email her. I said, Colette, don't eat anything crunchy. I don't want any food getting stuck in your throat. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But I, I feel you. I totally, feel I have you. these, I, that's my biggest gone for fear. an hour. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm like, what if your dad's taking a shower and you're choking yeah. your brother's watching like his iPad and doesn't know how to, he doesn't know CPR, or, like the Heimlich <laughs> maneuver. And so I have these fears because also she's like that child who will put something in her mouth and do a cartwheel because that's, you know, her nature. She's like mm -hmm. really a free spirit. And so I texted her and I said, I don't want to use like catastrophizing words. I was just like, please don't eat anything crutchy. I don't want to get stuck in your throat. I didn't say like, I don't want you to choke and die. Right. I have to be very like, I have to dance around the issue, but she wrote back. She's like, okay, mommy. And then I Aww. could like go off and do my, my workout without stressing about that. But and I don't know if that's rational or not, but it is who I am. And there was an easy way to kind of like address it. So I find that like, if there are these moments in your life as a parent, when you fear these things and you know, like deep down, like there's like no chance of that actual danger happening. Yeah. Nevertheless, like we fear things that actually have such a small chance of happening. So let's also fear the things that have a big chance of happening, you know, like crossing the street and getting hit by a car that's a huge, you know, relatively, like, especially depending on where you live, like I've, you know, riding your bike without, a, I see kids riding their bikes without helmets all the time. I saw a yeah. young boy riding his bike without a helmet on his cell phone on a busy street in my town during oh my like five o'clock rush hour. And I, I wanted to get his attention and, and say, Hey, but like, I didn't also, that would have caused an accident, you know? Right. So I just hope that he goes home and along the way, someone tells him, Hey, or tells his parent, I saw your son riding his bike without his helmet on or on his cell phone. Like have a conversation with your kid 
Mm-hmm. I hope someone does that for me. I want, I think we all have to work together to yep. like extend our fears out onto each other. other, look out for each yeah. other. Mm-hmm. For us, for me personally, as my kids become teenagers, I'm concerned about their friend groups. I'm concerned mm-hmm. about cell phone usage. And I'm hoping that by the time they become 13, 14 and entering high school, that there are laws that prohibit cell phone use or maybe social media app use. I know technically you have to be 14, but let's be honest, everybody's getting on Instagram earlier than that. And I just, I think I'd rather be the parent who says absolutely not to social media until maybe your prefrontal cortex has fully developed. Yeah. And if that's going to create social setbacks for them, well, then you know what? I will create a fund for their therapy sessions starting now (laughs) that they can use and dip into all through their life because it's sort of a pro, it's like you're weighing two fears. You're weighing two, and I talk about this in the book a lot, like you're afraid of something right now and I will raise you that fear and show you something even scarier down the road if you don't do something about this fear right now. If you don't do something with this fear right now. You know, like we're talking about parenting, but like in the money world, this happens a lot. Like I'm afraid of investing because the stock market is so volatile. So I'm just going to put my money in bonds. And I'm like, okay, but I'm going to paint you a much terrifying, more terrifying picture. You're 69 years old. You're 85 years old. You have nothing. So now you have to go and work under those very unflattering lights at Sam's Club, greeting people, handing out, you know, Ritz crackers to the same guy who keeps coming back to your Ritz cracker table. And now your best friend and you're living with your children. I'm sorry. What's scarier, right? right? Let's go back to today and actually invest because we know that investing is the only way we're going to compound our wealth in a short period of time. And yeah, the market's volatile, but that's what it does. Sometimes yeah. fear sometimes fear exists because there is a lack of knowledge. There is no education. There isn't enough context. You haven't done the homework. So when you're afraid of anything, whether it's as your role as a parent, as an investor in your career, maybe a first healthy move is just to learn more about what you're up against. It might be the the little step you need to kind of go, oh, actually, I don't have to not do this thing. I can actually do it. And I'm actually going to do it more informed now. Thanks, fear. I am superstitious and I was wondering if you are too. Um, Something that I like to do whenever I have a speaking engagement with my podcast is I have a little elephant. (laughs) It's um, it's a Ganesh that I keep. It's my good luck charm. And so I was wondering if you had something like that too, because I think that kind of calms fears a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Use it. Use it or lose it. My parents, they're very, Mm -hmm. they believe in fate. And they also believe in bad juju. I don't know what what that is, but it's like my parents were never really into bragging about their kids. My parents would never talk me up in front of their mm-hmm. friends, even though I was doing well in school and I was doing all these cool things. Like they just didn't want to share that with others because they like they were like they know Farnoosh is like doing well, but they would never be those parents that were like, she got the lead in the play and got honors role and all of that because they didn't want, as my mom would say, which means like the bad eye. Which yeah, then, the evil eye. We have the same. The, the evil same. eye. Buri, right. Buri is how you say it in Hindi. But yeah, I'm with you. Same thing. They they didn't want to have that. Like on if them. I post something about my daughter on social media, which is seldom, but she's too cute. I can't help it. Sometimes I do. And she'll get like a runny nose the next day or her jacket will go missing or she'll <laughs> fall and scrape her elbow. My mother will be like... You're just sharing too much about her online. She's gonna, you know, people are gonna give her the evil eye. And I was like, maybe she's just clumsy. Okay. Or maybe <laughs> she just goes to school and you know, takes on germs. Like that could also be happening. Mm. But I find myself, I do this thing when I get on an airplane. I grew up Muslim, but not more culturally. Like we didn't pray and all of that, but or go to the mosque. But my mom has taught me every time you get on a plane to do 19 bismillahs. It's a prayer. It's a quick prayer. It's actually, I think it might be in Arabic. So for like those 30 seconds on a plane, I'm speaking, I'm that person speaking Arabic. 
I'm like that person. I don't have prayer beads, but I'm definitely thinking it and I'm counting on my hands 19 times because my mother, it's like ghost, you know, when like in like mm-hmm. Patrick Swayze, like yeah. becomes Whoopi Goldberg. Like I think that like my mother, even though she's still alive, she is with me still in so many of these irrational moments when fear takes over. Like it's actually safer to fly in a plane than it is to get in your car. So I need to start doing that even when I'm in my car, but I don't, right? I reserve it for the plane because that's what I've, that's what I've been trained to do. Yeah. Oh, yes. I wanted to ask you your mom sense moment, a moment that you trusted your intuition. When my son was really little, he was a little bit behind in school. He wasn't he wasn't as chatty as his friends and he was um, slow to speak. And so I um, was taking him to this speech therapist and I just didn't feel like she appreciated my son. I felt like she was always like picking on him and always telling me, I think she wanted to keep on keeping on. I didn't think she like, and always would never talk about his progress, but always like, oh, this boy, he has so much work to do. And I think there might be an underlying behavioral problem and this and that. And I was always like, so deflated every time I'd pick him up from her office. And I said, you know what? I'm going to quit her. (laughs) Like I need to go somewhere else. And she had been highly recommended. She loved to talk about how so many of her speech therapy students went on to Harvard. And I thought that was actually a red flag. As soon as we met, I'm like, why are you talking about whenever you're going to a specialist and they're not talking about your child, but actually their resume and all the students they've helped and they've gone on to high places. Like there is a place and time for that. It's called your website. But when you're in the meeting, you want to learn how they're going to specifically help your child because they've observed certain things and they have very tailored ways of doing that for your kid. It's not like you're just coming and going through the mill, you know? Exactly. I just didn't trust her. And I, perfectly fine, like lady and, and, you know, accredited in all of that. She had, but she hadn't caught up with the times. I feel like she started, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. And now this was sort of her retirement era. And I think maybe she had just, she'd lost touch, I think, with some of the the new families that come into the neighborhood and where we were from and all of our light lived experiences. And I just think that it was not a good match. And I went against a lot of people's recommendations. Like, you got to stick with her. She's great. And we went to somewhere else. We went somewhere else, which was actually the woman would come to our house. She would go to his Ooh. school. This other woman was very rigid. We had to go up her like three flights of stairs in Park Slope every Tuesday with my two-year-old, you know? And by the time he'd get there, he was exhausted and couldn't yeah. do the 45-minute session. And most days he would just put his head on the table and she'd be like, he was very difficult today. Oh and my God. Really, like didn't understand like he's two. And we just took the right. Crosstown bus and now we're, we went up three flights of stairs and it's his nap time. And this was the only time you gave us. So I yes. feel like you have to be such an advocate for your kid. We also ultimately left private school where he was at because we just didn't feel like this was going to be for the long term where he was going to thrive because they weren't meeting him where he was at. And so mm. we moved. We moved to a yeah. suburb where they have great school districts. I think that my parents always did that for us. They The reason we bounced around a lot wasn't just because they had this need to, you know, adjust their lifestyle every time my dad made more and get a bigger house. That was also because they, they selected the neighborhoods we went to because they were safer, because they had better schools, public schools. And they knew that ultimately we were the ones, the children that were going to benefit the most from being in that environment. And I think your kids, you know, they're their own people, but as their guardians, we have to be their advocates right now. They don't, and they will advocate for themselves. Trust me, my kids, they they know how to stick up for themselves. But there are a lot of subtleties, you know, in the adult world that only an adult can pick up on that you owe it to your kids to, to you know, strike when it feels... Yeah. Those red flags, which I talk about in the book, are my best friends. Red flags are great. People yes. show you who they are. They tell you who you are immediately. Um, trust that. Yes. Don't react right away but put it in your back pocket. And if it starts to become a pattern, you know what? I think you need to trust that fear. 
Right, right. They're harbingers. They're they're helping you along your path. And yeah, I think they, yeah, they and- provide a solace in a way. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. My, I still talk about that woman and my husband's like, you need to drop it. She's yeah. <laughs> I was like, but oh, I can't, you know, because I took it personally. It's my son, yeah. you know? know? Yeah. But it, it gave you that knowing of, you know, just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean it works for you and you know your child best. And I think that's what you know, this mom sense, dad sense I speak of truly is, is no one can help you parent your child other than you. Um, I wanted to ask you to um, kind of channel your mom. I've heard you do your (laughs) version mom and I just, I love it. I love it. I love it. And it just, it's in the most sweet way, nostalgic kind of way, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you could have her um, channel her and talking about you and the book and Oh yeah. Well, she is a central character in a healthy state of panic. And as I'm writing, I'm worried that I'm going to make her feel uncomfortable or sad and not, a you know, look, we all have memories, but there are memories and there are points of view and it's how we left that memory feeling and not always the people we shared those memories with experienced it in the same way. And so while these stories are true, as true as I can remember and as true as I felt them, there's always another version. And my mom always has another version. I don't remember it that way, you know. It's because we didn't talk about things. We never talked about our feelings yeah. growing up. Yeah, so exactly. this was the chance for her to know how I felt and also how I reflected on her. And I wrote this book in my 40s. I would not have written the same book given the task of having to reflect on my mother in my 20s because I hadn't become a mom yet. I hadn't experienced life and I hadn't really ultimately grown to appreciate her sacrifices and realizing that although I wouldn't do a lot of the same things that she did in raising my kids, I really know that she did the best she could. Like she had very few resources. I have all the resources. Mm. And so I can't judge her. I can't fault her. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, like she says, it all work out. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Farnish so June. don't feel bad for me. I don't yeah. feel bad for me. I used to feel bad for me. I think we all like yeah. feel bad for ourselves sometimes. Like, oh. I know. I know. But don't feel bad for us. It's, you know, it all work out. It all work out in the end. 100%. And where can my listeners find you? Well, you can learn all about me in a healthy state of panic, which you can buy wherever books are sold. I am happy to see it's really well distributed, which I was really afraid of. And as a result, I worked really hard on pre-sales and I think it's paid off because now you go into the independents and they're carrying it and Barnes and Nobles and they're carrying it. And, you know, a little fun fact, as an author in 2023, it's extremely hard to get sellers to put your physical book in their on their shelves. They mm-hmm. don't take risks on new titles as much as they used to. Financially, it's just a whole different business model now. They would much rather buy boxes and boxes of Michelle Obama's books because they know it'll be gone tomorrow. And so I don't, it's not lost on me that this book is like actually in a physical store. So take a picture, send it to me. I love seeing it. Also, I host So Money, my podcast, three days a week. And Ask Farnoosh is also my favorite segment of the week. Although I love all the guests that come on on Mondays and Wednesdays. I think I love mostly sitting with our audience and answering their questions. And Instagram, you know, I'm having fun there. And I think that's how it should be. You shouldn't feel like social media is a, is a job or work. For me, I couldn't have that. I just go on there. Everyone's like, I love your, I love your posts. I love your strategy. I'm like, there's no strategy. I just get up and I go through my photo dumps and I just post something and I, you know, I write a pithy caption and call it a day. Um, But I do hang out in the DMs quite often. So if you have a question for me, if you want to share something, let me know whatever you want to know. Let me know. Like, that's a great place. I I, am pretty quick to respond in the DMs. Awesome. Oh my God. You really are so wonderful and connected to your audience and your friends and we love you for it. Congratulations. Thank you, Kanika. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to my chat with Farnoosh Tarabi. 
I think it was informative and really fun and entertaining as well. And I hope you laughed along and even thought to yourself, hmm, I didn't think about my fears that way. Farnoosh, you are a joy. And I'm so, so grateful to call you a friend. And I'm excited for the book tour that you're going on because this book, A Healthy State of Panic, is truly one of a kind. And it's really reframing the genre of self-help. Thank you all for listening to That's Total Mom Sense. As you know, definitely subscribe, rate, and review this show and share this episode with your friends. I'm sure you're all going to be able to glean some interesting insights and start your own book club. That's what I'm going to do. A Healthy State of Panic is available wherever books are sold. I am including an Amazon link in my show notes. And you can find that on thatsotalmomsense.com and look for Farnoosh Tarabi's episode. Be sure to check out my sponsor, namebubbles.com. And here is an example. I've used some labels already. These labels are ideal for when your kids are in daycare all the way through grade school. I use them on my kids' notebooks and binders and water bottles because we have a ton of those. And be sure to listen to my episode with founder Michelle Brandris on how she launched that business. You can follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta. That's where I'm most active. And you can email me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com. Remember, always trust your mom sense and dad sense. Stay strong, super parents. I'll see you next time. That's total mom sense.